This morning our scripture reading will be from Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, we'll start at verse 12. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken, that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness, so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after the Baals as their fathers, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider, call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows, it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak. Thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Good morning to each of you, and welcome to our service here today. We're glad that you are with us, and especially to those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we want to make you uh, welcome and invite you uh, to join in with us as we uh, together study the Word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have um, seen fit to meet with us here already today. Your Spirit is here with our spirits that you are teaching us even now. And we pray that as we come to this particular <clears throat> time of study of your word, that you would bless us. That you would bless us through the convicting power of your word. May we be obedient to you and your word and surrender our hearts and our desires and our wills to yours. For this we pray and ask in the worthy name of Jesus, our Savior and blessed Redeemer. Amen. I have a question for you that I want you to honestly evaluate yourself with. And that question is this. Are you able, are you able to live according to what you know to be right and wrong? You all know what's you all know something about right and wrong, do you not? You all have a sense, an inner sense of right and wrong. And the question is, are you able to live up to that that you know is right and wrong? And the second question that parallels that question is Does your religion 
make you better able to live up to what you know to be right and wrong? Does it make you more successful in being able to live in harmony with what you inside know to be right and wrong? Now those are questions that are important for us to to wrestle with. It's important for us to know ourselves in those ways. And the book of Romans that we're going to be studying from this morning does a good job of kind of peeling back some of the facade that we tend to put up to protect ourselves from knowing ourselves. So let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so ends this reading of God's holy and inerrant word, and may he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. The book of Romans as we have said before, is really a book about the gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul made it his mission in life to proclaim this good news. Everywhere he went, this is what he was about. And he says in chapter 1 that this gospel is what motivates him to write to the church in Rome. And this gospel is what motivates him to want to visit the folks in Rome, so that he can encourage their faith. And then he begins in chapter 1 to write to them to encourage their faith, and he begins this lengthy discourse on the gospel, what it is and how it works, and then ultimately in the last four chapters how it works out in life. And the first thing the Apostle Paul does as he begins this discourse this teaching on the gospel, the first thing he does is he demonstrates the desperate need that all people have. He does this by addressing various categories of people. The end result or the conclusion of this argument is found in chapter 3, where in in a number of places he says 
that mankind is all under sin, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's where, he, that's where he's going with this argument. And where we are here in Romans chapter 2 is in, is in the flow of that. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Romans. It's been over a month, almost two months, actually two months since, since we here at Mount Clinton have been in Romans. When I preached uh, through this passage in Stuart's draft, uh, we did it kind of consecutive Sundays. So we, we were here in, in this part of Romans for three Sundays in a row. And one of the questions that kind of came to me is, why does he have to go on and on about this? I mean, I admit it, I, I caught myself as I was preparing this sermon, saying to myself, just get on with it already. Okay, I'm tired of this negativity and this, this kind of constant bombardment with all this, this bad stuff about how bad people are. Do you have to keep rubbing it in, Paul? I mean, isn't this enough already? Now, perhaps you aren't feeling that yet because we haven't been doing this regularly here, but... I think this, this attitude and this, this kind of tendency that even I have is, is a way that demonstrates our biggest problem. And one of our biggest problems is we want to think better of ourselves than we ought to think. We don't like being told how wrong we are and how bad we are and how sinful we are. We want to think that we're pretty good people. We really are, aren't we? This is one of the biggest obstacles to the gospel. And as we will learn today, this obstacle is true not just for religious people like us, but for pagans, the irreligious people. But I think it's actually a bigger problem for the religious people. So the Apostle Paul keeps hammering at home. He keeps, he keeps hammering on us. And he will keep hammering on us all the way through chapter 3, until we finally raise our hands and cry, Uncle, okay, I get it, I understand. What is important for us this morning is that we find ourselves here. That we find ourselves here in these categories that the Apostle Paul describes. We are quick to find other people guilty. We are quick to point out how other people fit into these categories. But we are slow to discover and acknowledge the same thing about ourselves. So it's necessary for God, through the Apostle Paul, to show us, by his withering logic, where we fit into this condition of lostness apart from God. And this is necessary to rightly understanding the good news of the gospel. Without this Bad news, this desperately bad news, the good news isn't so good. It won't seem very good. Now, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul describes here at least four categories of people. People who resist and refuse the gospel. Now, two of those categories we've already looked at, but it's been a while, so I'll review briefly. First, in chapter 1, we have the category of the obviously wicked and rebellious people. These are people who it describes at the end of chapter 1 as people who know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. These are people who openly flaunt their rebellion against God. They flaunt morality. They defy the words of God. They encourage other people to get involved in their horrendous wickedness. And they, they are hurtful and destructive. And it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, we know some people like that. It's easy for us to point to our culture in this country as heading in that direction fast, if not already there. And then in the first part of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul deals with a second type of person who rejects the gospel. And this is someone we might call the self-righteous humanist or moralist. Someone who is ethically good, or they attempt to be, they, they think they are, they are outwardly decent, they are good living, well-intentioned, inwardly, however, they are not measuring up to their outward uh, facade, 
Inwardly, they are dealing with resentment and jealousy and hatred and envy. And their attitudes are as wrong as the actions of those who are outwardly wicked and rebellious. The problem is that such men delude themselves, they deceive themselves by thinking that everything is going to be all right with them because they are better than so-and-so. And so they compare themselves among themselves. See, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I must be okay. And God says, that isn't the standard by which I will judge. The standard by which God judges is his own perfection. And that perfection of God has been revealed to us in the law of God. And so we come to our text today, where we see how this law interacts with us. And we come here to the last two types of people who resist the truth, who resist the gospel. And one of these is the unenlightened pagan, the one who doesn't have access to the written law of God. Here we are dealing with the question of what to do about people who have not heard the gospel. What about those who live where the Bible and the law of God are unknown? And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says that their problem is that they defile their own conscience. Now, the other and the last type of person that he deals with here in chapter 2 is the religious person. The religious person who seeks deliverance from the judgment of God by religious practices, rituals, performances, and through the knowledge of the truth. Now, these two types of people are introduced by a statement here of the universal lostness of mankind. It's found here in verses 12 and 13. I'll read them again. For all, that's all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And here's why. Here's how it works. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The premise of the argument here is that the person who sins will die. Period. The person who sins will die. The one who obeys the law will be righteous before God. Now this, this isn't predicated on hearing the law, but on obeying it. You see, what God is really after is righteousness, actual righteousness, law-keeping. And God's standard doesn't even require someone to hear the law before they're guilty of sin. Now you say, wait a minute, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. How can someone be held accountable for obeying the law when they've never heard it? And what about grace? I thought the gospel was all about grace. I thought I was justified or made righteous on the basis of faith, not on keeping the law. Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul says about that. Let's see how he answers these objections. First of all, we have the unenlightened pagan. The ones who have not heard the law and yet, God says, are guilty of sin and will, be, and will die because of it. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now this answers the question, that non-Christians often ask Christians, and sometimes Christians ask themselves. What about the people who have never heard of Jesus Christ? What about the so-called innocent people, maybe the savages in the jungles? Now, sometimes 
usually we think of these people as some faraway place, but seldom do we think of the savages in the concrete jungles of our own cities and towns. Both are, however, on the same condition. Both, however, are in the same place, as we will see. Paul's answer to this question is that they will be judged. They will be judged even by their own standard. God judges men, you see, not according to what they do not know, but according to what they do know. And they will be judged by what they do know. Now people will say, let your conscience be your God. You've heard that. Let your conscience be your God. Well, let me tell you, from this text of Scripture, that's going to be a recipe for unhappiness. If that is all you have, it is a certain way of plunging your life into a life that alternates between fear and excuse. You see, God has built into man this sense of right and wrong. Man, mankind, humanity, is a moral creation. Even a little child has this. And when a little child screams, Not fair! He does so because he's making an evaluation on the basis of right and wrong. On the basis of a sense of justice. And it's being violated. And so he says, not fair. Now everybody, everywhere, has this sense. This moral sense. Even terribly wicked and cruel people have this sense of morality. This sense of right and wrong. And the problem is, the problem with our built-in sense of right and wrong is that it isn't always right. Because it's corrupted by our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. And so right usually ends up being what will benefit me and make me feel good. And wrong will usually be what I find to be distasteful or hurtful or unpleasant to me. But we all have this sense we all have this sense of right and wrong. It's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. It's a, part of what it, it's a big part of what it is to be human, to be moral beings. And what Paul says here is that when a person, when a person lives by this internal sense of right and wrong, they show that the law of God is on their hearts. They demonstrate that something of the law of God is written into our DNA. And then look what he says. God will use their very own standard of right and wrong as a basis for judgment. Do you get that? God will use their very own standard of right and wrong for a basis of judgment. What every person finds, what, all, what we all find if we're honest with ourselves is that we can't even really live up to our own standard of right and wrong. Whatever that is. We, we can't do it. We have this internal sense of right and wrong, even apart from God's law, and we still can't measure up to our own standard. And our conscience, it says, gives testimony to this fact. It's why people all the world over suffer and struggle with guilt and shame. Because we cannot measure up to our own standard. And what do we do with this double standard? We know what is right and wrong by whatever standard, by whatever means we have this sense of right and wrong, and we don't measure up to it. We don't perfectly do what we know to be right, and we don't perfectly avoid what we know to be wrong. And so our thinking is conflicted. First of all, we feel accused by our conscience. Our conscience whispers to us, you hypocrite, you. And then we start making excuses for ourselves. Well, I, I, I can't really because... And so our, our, our internal sense is conflicted and we are accusing ourselves and we are excusing ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says that according to the good news of the gospel, God is going to judge these people. And he's going to do so 
by evaluating the secrets of their own thoughts and their own conscience. And the implication is that every man will be guilty as charged. Because God perfectly knows what every man knows about right and wrong. And he perfectly knows all of the secret, conflicted thoughts and excuses about how and why he hasn't been able to live up to his own standard of right and wrong. And there's plenty of evidence to convict every unenlightened pagan by the pagan's own standard. So there are no innocent people. We judge ourselves. And so we come now to the religious person. The religious people, starting here in verse 17. And we see the same thing. Once again, we will be judged by our own standard. Now, we have some advantages as religious people. The Jews that the Apostle Paul is dealing with directly here have lots of advantages to the unenlightened pagan. And yet the end result we shall see is the same. They will be judged by their own right and wrong. If there's anybody that should be righteous, if there's anybody that, that should be perfect according to God's law, it should be the Jews. The Jews of the Apostle Paul's day were concerned about keeping every little part of the law, every little detail. They were particularly concerned with the, the external details of religious behavior. They wanted to make sure that everybody did what they were supposed to do. Now perhaps today we should substitute something here. We should substitute the title church member to bring it up to date. Because, you see, we as American Christians and as Mennonite Christians, we are in much the same condition as the Jews of the Apostle Paul's day. We have a very defined set of expectations for behavior. We are pretty sure that our way is the right way, and if not the only right way, at least one of the best right ways. We have a great body of truth that we delight in and that we feel proud of, of our knowledge of. Unfortunately, sometimes, oftentimes, we hope and think that knowledge and right behavior is what's going to deliver us in the sight of God. Now, let me clarify something here. I'm going to be pretty hard on us, on us as Mennonites. I'm doing this because it's my firm conviction that we, in many ways, are like the Jews in our thinking and in our behavior. But, you see, I could be just as hard on Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics. What is in view here in this passage is religious people, whatever the religion. People who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. But it so happens that this morning I'm preaching to a bunch of Mennonites. Not Baptists, not Presbyterians, not Catholics. And this message is for us. And we need to quit excusing ourselves because of what other people do or don't do. We have to deal with our own issues. Now that doesn't make being a Mennonite somehow better or worse. And it doesn't mean that all of the good things that we have are of no value. The Apostle Paul will deal with that right there in chapter 3 in our next sermon. What it does mean is that we must properly, correctly understand these things in light of who God is and of who we really are. We must hold these things humbly. In verse 17 to 24, we see how the Apostle Paul handles religious people and religious thinking. Look at this again. If you call yourself a Jew, or what... Or if you call yourself a Mennonite or a Christian, religious person, here's the advantages that you have. He says you rely on the law. You boast in God. You know His will. You approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Those are very good things, all of them. Our Jeremiah passage talked about boasting in God. That's the right place to boast. 
relying on God's law and knowing His will and approving what is excellent because we are instructed in the law. These are very good things. The Jews and us have all the advantages. We have all the advantages over the unenlightened pagan. We have all the advantages over the moral humanist. We have all the advantages over the wicked, rebellious, perverted people. And then Paul goes on to list four privileges that the Jews felt were theirs in relation to other people because of who they were and and because of the advantages that they had. You see, it isn't enough for religious people to be religious and righteous in their own eyes. This, This kind of person, this kind of attitude, always spills over into how we treat other people. And that's one of the clues that we can pick up on in our own lives that we're relying on our goodness. Here's what the Jews thought were their rights and privileges and maybe even duty. First of all, they were a guide to the blind. Now Jesus talked about the Jews as the blind leading the blind. And that's the way it is for us many times. But that isn't the way the Jews thought of themselves and it's not the way we think of ourselves. And this attitude that comes through here is one of condescension. You poor blind person. Here, let me help you find your way. You unfortunate, ignorant person. I have the truth. If you just do it my way, everything will be okay. Secondly, the Jews felt that they were a light to those in the dark. But not only this, so not only was this attitude of condescension uh, one of a personal nature at an individual level for a blind person, the Jews saw themselves as the light to the world, a shining city on a hill. One of the closest things that I can think of today is what is known as American exceptionalism where somehow we have this idea that the U.S. of A. is God's gift to the world. And somehow, somehow we're the, the best and brightest. Now every now and then, we run into churches or people in churches, religious people, who are like this. I hope this doesn't characterize us, but I'm afraid it does. Churches and people who are quite ready to dazzle people with their knowledge of the scriptures, to dazzle people with their the fact that they've got it all together. They know about this stuff. They know what to do with it. And they take great pride in this knowledge. Hey, look at us. Look at how we obey the scriptures. Our church is the true church. Yeah, we're the ones getting it done. Light to the blind, a light light to those in in the dark. Thirdly, the Jews felt that they were instructors of the foolish. Now today we have this. We have people who are always ready to correct anybody and everybody around them. To impart some truth to those unfortunate people who have not learned anything yet. And again, this is an attitude of, of looking down on those who are less than us, who are ignorant. And the fourth privilege which the Jews possessed, or which the attitude that they had about this was that they were teachers of children. And again, there's nothing wrong with teaching children. The problem is in in the purpose or the attitude that goes with it. We're going to make sure that our children get it right. You won't see our children out in the streets... No, our children are well-behaved model citizens because we know how to train children. And Paul's judgment of people like this, of religious people like this, is you are guilty yourself by those same standards. The attitude of the Jew, the attitude of the religious person is the same one that the Apostle Paul condemned earlier. 
You are outwardly righteous and correct, but inwardly you are doing the wrong thing. Inwardly you are the wrong kind of person inside. Jesus talked about this when he talked about the Jews as whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside they were pretty and all nice and clean. On the inside they were full of dead men's bones. The Jews were notorious in the Roman Empire for being over-sharp in their business deals. That's why the Apostle Paul says, You who preach against stealing, do you steal? The Jews were not above a little hanky-panky with the slave girls. And Paul says, You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? The Jews were ready to profit from trade with pagan temples. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The Jews bragged about the law, but they were willing to disobey it if it was convenient, if nobody would find out. And the Apostle Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That was the ultimate judgment upon the Jews. To them, blasphemy was the worst of sins. And yet Paul says, though you claim to have so much, though you have all these advantages, yet what you have done serves to blaspheme the name of God. Now, I don't think that I have to detail for you how true that is of much of American Christianity All we have to do is look at our own Mennonite subculture to find this to be true. In fact, we have more in common with Jews than we want to admit. The religious law-keeping, the strict appearance codes, the dependence on outward appearance as an indicator of spiritual health, all of these things are just like the Jews. And we suffer from the same kinds of sin. Again, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who teach against stealing, why are you so tight-fisted and underhanded in your business dealings? How come Mennonites are known as the inventors of copper wire? Why are you looking for ways that you can take advantage of other people? for your own gain. We have a very poor reputation in this regard. People have been turned away from God because of this. You who teach against sexual sin and adultery, why is there such a high level of sexual abuse of women and boys and children? Why do men and women in our subculture consume pornography and romance novels? And why is all this covered up? You who teach against all the evils of idolatry in our world, why are you more than willing to profit from other people's idolatry? Why is the question in our subculture of whether or not some technology is useful or necessary whether it's good for us to use or not, why is this question, does this question come down to whether or not it's necessary for business? Why is that the test for whether we're going to allow something or disallow it? You who teach a high ethical code of conduct, why do you break the law of the land if you can get away with it? Don't you know the tragedy of the judgmental attitude towards outsiders that we tend to exist to exhibit? Aren't you concerned with the fact that many people blaspheme the name of God because of our hypocritical attitudes and behavior? Now certainly this isn't just a Mennonite problem. This is a religious problem. This is a problem throughout the Christian world. It's not just true in this country, but around the world. Christians have caused people 
to stumble, to turn away from God because of the attitudes that we have and the way we approach people and the way we do not live up to our own standard. So our problem is the same as the unenlightened pagan. We can't even measure up to our own standard of right and wrong. Now the Apostle Paul seizes upon here, he singles out the supreme symbol of Jewish separation in verses 25 and 27. This was the, the right, the symbol of circumcision. And he says, circumcision, kind of pulling this out is kind of the ultimate of what it means to be a Jew. This is of value if you obey the law. He's not saying circumcision is of no value. He's just saying it is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision doesn't mean bunk. And, he says, he goes on one, one step further, if someone who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law of God, he will condemn you, who have all the advantages, who have the written law of God, and yet live as lawbreakers. What matters to God is whether the law of God is kept or not. That's what matters. So, this is the way it's always been for God. In fact, in the Old Testament, he told his people that what matters more than sacrifices is an obedient heart. Now, the Jews, of course, they prided themselves, and they still do, on this rite of circumcision, this symbol that they are God's people. And I believe that we could substitute some other things. We might substitute baptism or in some circles, confirmation. We might substitute plain dress. We might substitute church membership. Whatever it is that is a part of our religion, as our identity, we could substitute it for circumcision. It's not that these things don't have value. They do. But if they become the way in which we evaluate ourselves and other people about whether or not we belong to God, then we are mistaken and we are deceived. So many people rest upon the fact that they have been baptized, that they've been accepted into membership in the local church, that they've been living a certain kind of code to a certain kind of behavior. And the Apostle Paul says all of that is of value only, only if you keep the law. Only if something is actually happening in your heart that makes you clean inside, will the outside matter at all? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you see, here's what we want to do in our religion, whatever it is, whatever religion it is, here's what we want to do. We want to take the law of God, and because we know we can't measure up, we can't even measure up to our own standards of right and wrong, but we want to take the law of God, and we want to codify it, we want to, we want to put it in these little boxes that are achievable, that are doable. And we want to say, okay, if, if we do this, 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 and this, or if we don't do this, 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 and this, then we'll be okay. And we've again set up our own standard of acceptability. And that would be bad enough except for the fact that we can't even measure up to that standard. So in our attempt, in our attempt to please God based on something that we can achieve in ourselves, we end up condemning ourselves just like the unenlightened pagan. God says, nothing outward makes you a Jew. Only when his heart is changed is he real Jew. Just with, as it was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You become a believer, you become a Jew when you believe in Jesus, the Messiah. What makes you a Christian is not the culture you come from. It's not the rituals through which you have gone. 
It's not the circumstances of your life. It's not your background, your ancestry, your history. What makes you a Christian is the fact that you have come to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and you have completely trusted in Him alone. So what matters in God's eyes? Again, let me make this very clear. Keeping the law is what matters in God's eyes. And to what measure our religion helps us to keep the law, that's a good thing. The problem is not in the keeping of the law. The problem is not in the outward identification with that law. It's not the problem. The problem is our hypocritical hearts that for one, think we can actually do this well enough to please God, and two, think that somehow it doesn't apply to us in the same way it applies to everybody else. Jesus says, you ought to do the things like tithing and the other kind of nitty-gritty parts of the law, but you ought not to neglect the weightier matters of the law. So it's easy for us, as I said, to develop a religious system that takes care of the details and ignores the weightier matters of obedience to God. It's easy for us to develop a religious system that we can attain to in our flesh, that we can use to measure ourselves and others to see whether they are right with God. Let me ask you again, how many of you are perfectly righteous in your heart of hearts. How many of you live, perfectly live in accordance with the standard of right and wrong that you know in your heart? In your, in your inmost thoughts, in the secret places of your heart, everything is godly, right? No, I didn't think so. So why, why do you act like you have it all together? Why do we act like we have it all together? The reality is that no one is righteous enough. No one keeps the law well enough, even if we know it. But that is what God requires. That is the standard by which God will judge. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. That's the standard God's going to use. Paul's conclusion here in this section of of Romans in chapter 2 is that man without Christ is hopelessly lost. Though he, he defies God, he deludes himself, he defiles his conscience, he denies what he himself teaches, whatever it is, he is absolutely hopelessly lost until he comes to know Jesus as Lord and lives on the basis of that relationship. That's what makes a Christian. It's not a question of whether you're baptized or whether you're a church member or even a church leader. The question is, do you have faith? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you received the gift of righteousness which God gives to those who do not deserve it, who cannot earn it, but receive it by His love and grace. Bottom line, for all of us, are you willing to denounce and renounce your own attempts at self-justification and self-righteousness? Are you willing to see yourself as God sees you, as someone who is unable to keep the law, whatever that law is? whether it's the law of your own making or whether it's God's law. You you can't measure up. Hopelessly lost. Apart from God, we are all there. Desperately in need of a Savior. A lot of this is going to be revealed in our attitude towards other people. Will we be the people of the law who look down on those who don't have it all together? Or will we get in the trenches with people and identify with them 
as fellow sinners who need the same grace of God that we are offering to them. So whether you are an unenlightened pagan or whether you're a religious devotee or whether you are a good person, your issue is the same. You can't even live up to your own standards, much less God's. So why pretend like you can? Throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the beauty of the gospel is that when we approach God with this humility of heart, He will work in us to make us actually righteous. Without holiness, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to see God. But this is going to have to be His holiness at work in us because ours will never, ever measure up. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you knowing that you have just dealt us a blow. And we want to fight back. And we want to argue. And we want to say it's not fair. But then you remind us that we're a bunch of hypocrites. Because we can't even we can't even live up to our own standard, much less to yours. So I pray that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and by the power of your word. You would not only convince us and convict us of this reality, but that you would be working to change the ashes into something beautiful. That you would be working to take the brokenness and the sinfulness and the, the distorted, messed up stuff that we are and create out of us and in us a beautiful masterpiece to your honor and glory. Father, help us to never forget where we've been and where we've come from and to never forget who it is that brought us up out of the miry clay. And Father, I, help, I pray that you would help us particularly as we, as we relate to other people, that you would give us this spirit and sense and attitude of humility and of identity with compassion for those who are just like us in need of your grace and your cleansing and your power and your righteousness. But Father, may you make us a congregation of people who are not merely religious on the outside, but who have been changed on the inside. And may we love you and serve you out of hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.